So John 4, we've seen Jesus' discourse with the woman at the well, and He's left Samaria. Now He's come back into Galilee. So just to get our thoughts back together as to what's went on, Jesus lives in Galilee, the city of Nazareth in Galilee. Um, Galilee being like one of our counties. Nazareth, a town in that county. That's where Jesus is from. There's been a feast at Jerusalem. And as the Jewish people do at feast times, they all gather, maybe the, the men gather in Jerusalem for these feasts. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It was there that He cleansed the temple. It was there that um, He said that He was going to destroy His body or His body would be destroyed and raised up on the third day. And now he's, he's come back from Jerusalem, going back home to Galilee. He has passed through Samaria on his way back. There where he stopped, he met with the woman at the well and spoke with her. And now in verse 43, after he stayed two days in Shechem in uh, Samaria, he's now come back home. And we covered some of this last time, so we'll go quickly through what we've already covered. But let's pick up in verse 43. After two days, so that's the two days that Jesus spent in Samaria, He departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus Himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when He was come into Galilee, the Galileans received Him, having seen all the things that He did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where He made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So now Jesus has come back and uh, we said last time this a prophet has no honor in his own country. Jesus says those words and as He comes into Galilee they receive Him gladly. And you know that being the local celebrity of Jesus, the name of Jesus. Jesus has put Galilee back on the map, if you'll have it. Everybody's talking about this man from Galilee. But when it comes to the doctrine of the Word of God, when Jesus is going to begin to teach why He's there and the need that they have of Him and what He's come to accomplish for them, it's then that they all reject Him. Remember, we're going to see this ministry as Jesus works all of these works. We're going to see His ministry balloon and there's going to be multitudes following Him and thronging Him. But by the time He dies, there's 120 people that believe that are in the upper room. So what can you conclude from that? There was no genuine faith. And that's, we'll think about that on into this Scripture today. What is genuine faith? There's emotionalism. There's this miracle seeking and watching. You know, that's entertainment's what I would say. They're in it for the entertainment factor. We want to see what this man is going to do next. That's why you'd tune into Evil Knievel. We want to see what he's going to do next. Well, that's the way they treated the Lord. We want to see His works. But as far as being persuaded and convinced that this man was the propitiation for our sins, His death was going to pay for my sins that I could be accepted with God, that He was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the majority of folks never came to that belief. And they don't today either. I mean, that's just the truth. Some follow for a little while. Some follow till persecutions arise. Some follow till trouble comes up. Some only come when trouble comes up. And when things are well, they go. But those that stay and pursue and uh, follow until the end, they're very few. They're a remnant. And so the work of God is made evident. Not, it's not something man can do of his own power or ability. So he comes in and uh, they receive him gladly. 
Because they had been at the feast. They had been there. Maybe some seen it. They bring word back home. The talk of the town. Uh, sometimes we disconnect. This, this is real life. This is a real place. These are real people. So when somebody you know does something that's crazy, what do you do? You go tell everybody that'll listen to you. Let me tell you what I've seen. Well, that's what's went on. Jesus, they're waiting on Him to come back now. They want to talk to Him. They want to see Him. They want to say, boy, I saw how you talked to them old Pharisees up there. I saw how you put them in your place. I, I just want to congratulate you for that. But Jesus has stopped for two days in Samaria. They're wondering where He's at, no doubt. They're ready for Him to get back home so they can see Him and talk to Him. And when He comes, they receive Him gladly. And when He comes to Cana of Galilee, now that's the city where there was the marriage. So Nazareth is a town, Cana is a town in Galilee. This is where the marriage was, where Jesus made the water into wine. His first miracle. So when He comes back into Cana of Galilee... And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. John is very good at setting the scene, giving us the setting that all of this is happening. So Jesus is now back in Cana. There's a man that lives in Capernaum. That's another town in Galilee. And his son is sick. So verse 47, When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him. Look at how word has gotten around. I mean, I, it almost to me sounds like Jesus comes into Cana and somebody from Cana goes to Capernaum, says Jesus is back, he's back in town, but this man whose son is sick here, he gets word that the Lord is back in Cana. So if Jesus is going to retrace his steps he's going to wind up going back through Capernaum. That's on his way back home. But this man, because of the urgent need that he has, doesn't have time to wait on Jesus to come, nor does he want to risk as to whether he's going to stay two more days somewhere else. You see that? This man's got a pressing need. He's got a need that even at the point of death, we're going to read in just a minute. So he's seeking the Lord, and when there's that urgency and that urgent need, man will do more than what he's apt to normally do. When the Lord brings that conviction and persuasion, it don't take some great move or wisdom of man to bring somebody to the Lord. But when the Lord brings that great need upon the heart, they'll come. They'll find Him. They'll search Him out. They'll look for Him. And so here, He's come to the Lord. And Jesus said unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So we talked about this just a little last time. But here is the answer maybe to the question that we've been left with, a prophet's without honor in his home country, but they're receiving him gladly. What's Jesus talking about there? Well, except you see signs and wonders. That's what they were there to see. They were there for the show. They were there for the theater. And if you'll pay attention with a sober mind as you go to church, as you go to places, you go to revivals, there's a pile of folks that come for the show of it. We come to see the preacher jump around. We've come to see a, an emotional show that engages us, but as far as any attention or hearing of the Word of God, any persuasion that what's being said is the truth is few and far between. We want the loudest and the biggest ruckus that we can drum up from behind the pulpit and whether it's gospel or not doesn't matter. Things can be preached contrary to the gospel, but if you say it loud enough and clap hard enough, people will accept it. They'll amen it and they'll go with it. It's backwards, isn't it? 
It's signs and wonders that people want. It's not the gospel truth that people are looking for. And if the gospel truth is there, most of the time, that's not what's paid attention to. It's mannerisms, it's carnality, it's flesh, it's a show, it's enjoyment. So Jesus says, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So I think about in John 20, you're going to see Thomas. Jesus has raised from the dead. He has said several times that he's going to die and the third day raise again. Now the women, Peter and John maybe, they've brought back word that he's not there. We've seen him. He's risen. He's alive. And Thomas says, you know what Thomas says, except I see him and I put my finger in his hands and put my arm in his side, I will not believe. Thomas needed a sign or a wonder. And I I realize, doubting Thomas, unbelieving Thomas, he had to have something special maybe. But also in the purpose of God, here's one that didn't just blindly believe because somebody told him. There was going to be enough evidence to prove to Thomas that Jesus truly was alive. And so even Thomas's doubt goes further to prove that this was legitimate. Thomas wasn't going to believe otherwise. But Jesus says to Thomas, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Thomas, the reason you believe is because you've seen my resurrected body. But blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. How is that possible? How is it possible that people that never seen Jesus before, they didn't see Him alive, they didn't see Him dying, they've never seen Him resurrected, they've never seen any of the disciples. We are 2,000 years separate from, and you could stop at any point in history in between, How can people be so persuaded of this man's work that they're willing to die for their belief of it? They're they're blessed is what they are. They're blessed for the persuasion and the conviction and the convincing of the Holy Spirit of God. You know, a lot of times we think, well, they're blessed because they've believed. No, they're blessed to be granted the ability to believe. Remember what Jesus says to Peter. Blessed art thou, Simon Peter. He's not blessed because that he knows Jesus is the Son of God, but he says, blessed art thou, for flesh and blood's not revealed this to you, but my Father has. You know what blessed Peter? That God revealed to him Who Jesus really was. How are people so persuaded of Him today? God has revealed Him unto them. God did that work. Now we know people that are religious. We know people that were raised up Christian. We know people that in their mind believe in Jesus and yet there's no persuasion that brings about reform in the life. It's not Christian raising that produces saved people. And I'm not putting down Christian raising. It don't matter what you say anymore. If people don't like you enough, they'll twist everything you say even though they know what you're really meaning. But it's a work of God that brings about persuasion that changes the life and brings people into the Lord Jesus Christ. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. So here he is. He's in Psalm 40, verse 17. I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. 
Thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. He's in a place of such distress. He says, just come down or my child's going to die. So he had no knowledge of Jesus raising the dead, his ability to do that. Jesus hasn't raised anybody to this point. But the man thinks if he dies, then my hope's gone. All this man can do is heal. But he is persuaded that Jesus can accomplish this work. There's been enough done that he believes this man has some sort of power and ability to do this work that the doctors are unable to do. If I can go and get medicine and I can be cured, I mean strep throat's a perfect example. We have medicine for that. You can take it and you can get better. You cannot take it and it'll get in your bloodstream and it can kill you. But there are some cases that there is no hope. And it's to the Lord that we look and trust even in those situations. Here's one that there's no help for. He's come to the only hope that there is. And in salvation, that's where a man or a woman that is truly saved, that's where they come to. The Lord Jesus is my only hope. How does a man get to that place? He is, he's persuaded. He's convinced. He's convicted. I would like for you to equate... All those words mean the same thing. You hear conviction. That's the word that's always used in church circles. But they all mean the same thing. To be convicted is to be convinced is to be persuaded. And all of those are Bible words. Abraham was fully persuaded. We'll look at that a little bit later. They're all Bible words. They all have the same meaning. When I say we need our people to be convicted, really what I'm saying is I need the Holy Ghost of God to persuade them of the truth. They need to be convinced of what the truth is. And so this man has some level of persuasion. Come down or this is going to be the end. Is that not the case for every individual that's lost and undone? That's the case. They're coming to an end. And the Lord Jesus, He truly is the only hope. So Jesus says in verse 50, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. So that word believed. The word faith and the word believe, they're very close in the Greek language. They're of the same word. I would try to pronounce them, but I'll butcher that. So faith is a persuasion, a credence, a conviction of moral truth. If you look it up, that's your definition. And this word, to believe, it's to have faith. To credit, to entrust. So it's more or less an action word. It's faith in action in an individual. So Jesus says, except you see signs and wonders except I go down there and do some great display you're not going to believe. He says, come down ere my child die. And Jesus says, go your way, your son liveth. What evidence does he have that this has taken place? His son's in another city. We're going to see probably a day and a half or more journey away. They don't have cell phones. They don't have cameras. They don't have telegraphs. He's got no way of knowing. All he's got is Jesus says, go your way, your son's living. He's, he's, and you know, you say, well, he was alive when he had the fever. But that's not really what the word means. 
there's been a work done. Your son is well. So here is an example of what faith looks like. With no natural evidence. There's none. You tell me what cause this man has to believe what Jesus has said. He's got no evidence of it. He's got no sight, no hearing. He's not seen anything done. There's been no sign that anything's changed. All he's got's the word of the Lord Jesus. Now you put yourself right there. Are you going to turn around and go two days back home? In the flesh, that ain't going to cut it. You know what we need? Give me a sign that I know that my trip's not been in vain. Give me something to hold on to that I can look at that will assure me that everything's been done. This man doesn't need a sign or a wonder. The Word of God is enough for him. He believes the Word of God. You know, that's what people that are coming to salvation, that's what they have to do. You must believe the Word of God. Well, I would like for there to be a sign. What kind of sign do people really need to be persuaded? Remember, I I read you or quoted this scripture last time. Jesus told the rich man that was in hell, if Lazarus raised from the dead and he went back to your brothers and spoke to them, they wouldn't believe even though one raised from the dead. See, that sign and that wonder, that's what people get hung up on. We get hung up on the work and not the message of the Word of God. And if you're not careful, you'll get hung up on the mannerism and you'll miss the message of the Word of God. So then, what is faith? And this this scripture came to me as I was thinking about this verse. Elijah, during the time that there was no rain and there was a great famine, he was sent to the widow's house, you remember? And as he left the brook that had dried up, he went to Zarephath, went to this widow woman, and she said, well, I've got a handful of meal. I'm going to cook that. Me and my son's going to eat that, and then we're going to starve to death. That's all we've got left. We don't have any means to buy more. The land is in such terrible shape. This is the end of my days. And Elijah says, no, the Lord sent me. And what I'd like for you to do is take that last handful of meal and make me a cake and bring it to me first. Then make for yours. Because the flour's going to stay. The meal's going to stay. The oil's going to stay. Everything's going to make it until the famine is ended. The Lord said so. Now you put your arm in the flour basket, in the meal uh, barrel, and you pull out the last handful. And you take the oil, and you pour the last few drips of oil into it, and you tell me you're going to believe that there's more in there. And yet, every time she went back, there was another handful there she was able to scrape enough for another cake every time she went back. But you know what she's going to have to do? She's going to have to first believe the Word of God. And not just believe it as, yeah, I know what you're saying, but believe it enough that action goes with it. This man's going to leave and go back home. She's going to bake her last cake of bread and give it to Elijah. And well, if this don't work then we're not even going to get a last supper, a last meal. She's believing the Word of God. So Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith, shows us what faith is. And again now, if you're not careful, you'll read Hebrews 11 and you'll stand in awe of the people 
in Hebrews 11. The people are not the focus of Hebrews 11. Faith is the focus of Hebrews 11. And what faith did in all of these different people's lives. So faith, a persuasion, a credence, a conviction of moral or religious truth. So let's just stick with the first word of the definition. Persuasion. So faith is the evidence of things hoped for. It is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. I thought that sounded wrong. Mm -hmm. So the substance, the foundation... That, that that would uphold, it's a pillar is really what it is, of things hoped for. So remember the Bible word hope, not like our word hope, but it is a confident expectation. It's sure, it's certain, it's not I hope that it comes as we would say, but it's I know that it's coming at some point. Sure, certain expectation. So how is the church so sure and so confident that there is after this life a day of judgment and a day of deliverance for the people of God? And just take it back to your lost time. How was it that you became (coughs) persuaded? You got faith. You can say it that way. How was it that the faith or the persuasion come to you that you were in sin and in danger of eternal judgment? What persuaded you that if you died you were going to lift your eyes in hell? What persuaded you that the Lord Jesus was the only hope that you had? What persuaded you that you had to move to Him or you were without hope. You were persuaded of that. The Holy Ghost of God persuaded you. So where did that faith, that persuasion, come from? Well, preacher, everybody's got faith and you have to exercise it. Is that really true? That faith was in you the whole time and you just had to exercise it. You were not persuaded of any of that beforehand. God persuaded you of that by the Holy Spirit. So that lines up then with Ephesians 2. That faith is the gift of God. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It lines up with what happened to Peter. Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this, but my father revealed it. Where did your faith come from? From the persuasion, the conviction, the convincing of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's where Bible faith comes from. And do you know what is upholding our expectation of a world to come that's better? The persuasion of the Holy Spirit of God. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit persuaded me in such a way that I could not unbelieve it. I could not get away from it. But once God persuaded me even that I was a sinner, my life was different after that. When it thundered loud, I remember loud thunder and my heart jumping. The Lord's coming back. Couldn't go back to the way that it was beforehand. There was a persuasion there. A persuasion that brought about salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know how we're persuaded? The Holy Spirit of God. So this persuasion is the foundation of our hope. We know there's a better land God by the Spirit has persuaded us of that and is the evidence of things not seen. Things that's never been looked at before. I've never seen Jesus 
with my eyes before. I've never seen what it's like after this life is over before. I've never seen what it looks like in heaven with the Father. And yet I am persuaded that all of those things are true and real and according to the Word of God. And triple PhD doctors can't talk a man out of that with all the reason. Ain't that amazing? A doctor can tell you to take this pill and it'll help you and we'll believe that. But these nuts, they can't persuade the church off of the Word of God. If it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24. And yet, it's not been possible. Why is that? A persuasion from God. We have evidence. You know what the evidence is? You know what the evidence to me was? That this was the truth. It's the Holy Spirit bringing about persuasion in my life. So in in Romans 4, we're going to look at a man that had faith. See, when you say it like that, our minds think of something good about Abraham himself. But when you say he had faith, what you're saying is he had a persuasion. Abraham had been persuaded. Hatney. Verse 20, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what He had promised, He was able also to perform. Abraham had been fully without any spot of question in his mind he was fully persuaded. Now let me ask you, should the unbelief of others or the doubt of others, should that cause me to come off of my persuasion? The truth is we know why others are not persuaded. They're blinded by the devil. They're in the clutches of sin. They're in darkness. They're dead. However you want to say it, they're lost They can't see. We should not expect a world that is unregenerate. And when we say world, sometimes we disconnect. The world that is unregenerate a lot of times lives under our own roof. We shouldn't expect them to be persuaded like you've been persuaded. They can't be except the Holy Spirit persuade them and convince them. And so... Abraham was so persuaded that he staggered not at the promises of God. In Hebrews 11, again, verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten. I realize I've said this several times, but it's, this, is, this is amazing to me. Abraham had one promise. Through this seed, the whole world is going to be blessed. He never said, I'll raise him from the dead. He never said uh, anything else. And he gives him Isaac. And God says, this is the seed. And then 25 years later or so, God says, I want you to go offer this son. He didn't say, I'll raise him from the dead. There was no additional promise given. Abraham was going off the first promise that God had given him. And Abraham was so persuaded that God was going to fulfill his promise that Abraham said in his mind, if I kill him, God will bring him back from the dead. God's made a promise and it's going to happen. So... He that received the promise offered up his only begotten, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. 
So it was in a type and a shadow. I tell you that Isaac was even born was a miracle of God. And Abraham said, well, if, if I offer him here, God will keep his promise. So Abraham was fully persuaded. God had persuaded him by the spirit of the work that he was going to do. On down in Hebrews 11, more familiar scripture, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. An honorable position. I don't even know what you could compare this position to in our world today. There's not really a sovereign king like Pharaoh was over Egypt who had control of everything. That don't exist today. But here, Moses had opportunity to grow up and be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The highest place in the world, Egypt being the number one country on the face of the earth. Moses was so persuaded that he refused this great position and the next verse, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. I'm going to tell you, you don't even have to go that far. You put two jobs side by side and one of them is $2.50 more an hour. Which one are you picking? The one that profits you the most. But I want you to look at what Moses done here. In one place, he's got the grandson of the sovereign king of the world and in the other, suffering affliction in the middle of the desert with the children of Israel. How could a man choose to suffer over the blessing? He was persuaded. Moses was persuaded of a life that's temporary here and a life that's eternal on the other side. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for he had wrecked understanding. I can't quote it. I don't remember and it's not wrote down. But he respected the recompense of the reward. May not be exact words. But he was looking to the end. How did this happen? It was by faith. God persuaded Moses. See, there's, there's no way that natural man can make these decisions of his own accord. There had to be godly influence in these men's lives. How is this man going to be persuaded at this word from miles away and believe that this is the truth? He's got persuasion. So you see the difference then when James says that the devils believe and tremble. The difference between that believing there and believing by faith. There's a difference. There's a difference in believing that Jesus was a man and that He gave His life and that He's the Savior. There's a difference in that and a persuasion from the Holy Spirit of God, isn't there? There's a difference. So James... The devils believe, but boy, they don't have any persuasion of God. Our world and our friends and our family, they may believe in the head. What they lack is a persuasion. You can say conviction. That's what's lacking. But I want you to know what you're saying when you say it. What they're lacking is faith. What they need is God to give them faith. When I, what am I saying when I say that? That God would persuade them. That God would convince them. That God would convict them.
So this man receives the Word of God and the man believed. How do we know that he believed? How do we know that Abraham believed? He offered Isaac. How do we know that Moses believed? He forsook Egypt. How do we know that this man believed? He took that word and went back home. And he's going home now (coughs) believing that this work is done. I don't know how you could look at that and not say that the Spirit of God must have been at work to persuade him of this. But he's going home nevertheless. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then he inquired he of them of the hour when he began to amend. They said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And he himself believed in his whole house. So let's look at these together now. The man's going back home. So it's probably a day and a half to two days journey for this fella. You can only walk so far. You can only go on horseback so far in these days. They didn't have great roads like we do today. So he sets out going back home. On his way home, he's probably camped that night that he spoke with Jesus. The next morning he's packed up and he's headed back on the road. And that next day he meets up with servants from his house back home. What are they doing? They've come back to get, G- to get this man out of Cana. You don't need to seek Jesus anymore. He's, he's turned the corner. The fever's left him and he's much better. And the man says, well, when exactly did this happen? And John's got it down to the hour, about the seventh hour. That's one o'clock. About one o'clock yesterday, he began to improve. And that man knew that was the time that I was there talking with Jesus. So do you see how he's Could it have been that he just got better? I mean, it happens, don't it? With no real explanation as to why things turn the corner. So you know the doubters are going to say, well, that didn't have anything to do with Jesus. Jesus didn't have no part in that. He just started to do better on his own. That, That virus had run its course. Jesus did no work in that. Well, that man says, what time was it? It was about this time. And he's in his mind saying, well, it it was a little after one that I was talking with the Lord. So you put two and two together. When the Lord spoke that, didn't take a day, but the hour the Lord spoke that was the hour that he started doing better. So what persuasion that he had then, do you reckon it was strengthened any by the work of the Lord? You remember the faith? I mean, really, if you look back to the day you got saved, you were persuaded. But if you truly were persuaded and you truly were regenerated and God truly saved you and you've been in the way any length of time, As you've went through this life, you've endured hardships, you've looked at tough times, you've seen difficult situations, wouldn't you say your faith today has grown since the day that He brought you into the family? You've become more and more and more persuaded by the working of God in your life. That's God bringing His children, some through the fire, some through the flood, some through great trials, but all through the blood. That's the Lord bringing His dear children along in growth and in persuasion of the truth. And so this man now, he knows. Listen to the way it's worded here. Verse 53, So the Father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. So remember this now, that John is working 
to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. This man here saw enough evidence that he was completely persuaded that Jesus was tied to this miracle. There was nothing that could persuade him otherwise. It was Jesus' word that brought this work to pass. He was persuaded of that. Are you persuaded of that for you? Did God's work bring you to the Lord Jesus Christ? This man's going to believe and his whole house. Does Here's more tradition. Does this mean that this man's faith saved his whole house? Those are big words. You hear that all the time. God's going to save my whole house. Did God save Abraham's whole house? I mean, He did. Ishmael was rejected. Did God save Isaac's whole house? Did He? He did Jacob, but He didn't Esau. So don't take it out of context. I'm not saying his whole house didn't believe. I believe that they did. I believe this persuasion that God gave this man, he was able to go back home and say, look, this is what happened to me down there. This is what time that I was speaking to him. I know that it was that time because it was just after the dinner bell had rung and we had eaten lunch and we had got up and then I found him. It was around 1 o'clock. And he spoke those words and they said it was that time that he got up. Jesus is the one that did this work. And the persuasion that was in him by the same working of the Spirit persuaded his house also. But know this, Lot can go back to his sons-in-law and say God's going to burn this place up and they seemed as ones that mocked. They didn't believe what he said. So, who gets glory? God gets glory. If your house is saved, and I, I pray that my house is saved in the future. I pray that. But I know this, if they are, it's God that does it. And I get no glory for it. If they are, it's God that brought it about. Not because I did anything to earn it. But we look to God who's merciful, who's loving, who's gracious. And when they are saved, we place all of that glory to Him and I did nothing to do it. So in Luke chapter 1 verse 4, Luke was, Luke was a doctor. Luke was an educated man. Luke was one that took evidence. I believe he's one going through the evidence. So in the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, he's addressing an individual named Theopolis. And he's saying, I want you to know the things that we are persuaded of. In verse 4 of chapter 1, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. I want you to know just how certain that this way is. Peter says it a little different. We know that we've not followed cunningly devised fables. This isn't stories that people have made up. We know this was the truth because I was there in person and I was an eyewitness to His glory. I seen Him on the mount. I heard the voice Say, this is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. But we've got a more word of prophecy. We have the Word of God. We have the law and the prophets that pointed to Jesus and we've got Jesus that fulfilled the law and the prophets so that there's a certainty of these things. This man was certain the Lord was responsible for what had happened to His Son. So there ought to be a certainty 
in the lives of those that come to God by faith through Jesus Christ that God's the one that has done this work. If mom and daddy has persuaded the children to come to the altar, if the deacons and the preacher persuade the children to come to the altar, then they're going to reach an age and they're going to go their own way. They're going to do their own thing. And there's going to be proof that God didn't do the work. But I tell you what people are looking for. We're looking for a reason to get emotional. We want a show. I want to put on a show and I want to see a show and I want to get cry and teary and I want to enjoy it in the flesh. I want glory. That won't work. That will not produce a child of God. That does not produce a persuasion that cannot be moved. But when God persuades an individual, they cannot be moved off of that. I, I believe the Word of God will back that up. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when He was come out of Judea into Galilee. So, whether or not that's the complete second miracle in Jesus' life in that day or not, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think it could be just in the early days of His ministry. But I think most likely what you've got is John saying, this is the second sign that I've provided you. John's giving evidence. If you were in the courtroom and you've got forensic evidence, you've got video evidence, you've got DNA evidence, maybe you've got a specialist in each one, and what are you doing? The prosecutor is presenting the case. You are working to persuade the jury by this, this, and this, that this man's guilty of the crime. John's presenting the evidence to persuade you and me that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here, this is, this is piece number two. I don't know the right term. I can't think of it right now. But it's the second piece of evidence to prove that Jesus is who that He says He is. And there will be many more. All hearts and minds clear.